Welcome to the Imposture to Unstoppable podcast, where physicians can learn how to overcome imposter syndrome and create the career of their dreams. Before we jump in, I have to tell you about a free masterclass that I have coming up this week. It is called The Five Steps to Overcoming Self-Doubt. I am going to teach you the most common causes of self-doubt, what no one ever told you about confidence, including a little blurb about my favorite type of confidence, which is a humble confidence, what you must stop doing immediately that is preventing you from being more confident. And I'll give you a glimpse into the possibility of your life and how attainable it is for you to be rid of that self-doubt. I also will get into my easiest and best steps to overcoming that self-doubt spiral that we can all find ourselves in from time to time. So it is going to be March 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you can register at kristinyatesdo.com forward slash no more self-doubt. And even if you think you can't make it or know you won't be able to make it, but you want the information, if you go ahead and register anyway, then I will send you the replay the next morning. I'm also going to be talking about an opportunity to work with me and giving away some bonuses. If you're interested, you certainly don't have to stay and listen to that. You can come and get the immense value from the masterclass itself and ask questions or sign off for the night. So again, that's Wednesday, March 17th, the five steps to overcoming self-doubt. See you there. Dr. Erica Mosesson is a pulmonary and critical care medicine physician. She attended medical school at Cornell and her fellowship at Oregon Health and Sciences University. She is also the founder of Air Health, Our Health, an educational resource regarding the intersection between breathing healthy air and the well-being and wealth of our communities. She is a fellow podcaster and hosts the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Erica, thank you for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. All right, let's just jump right in. And I can't wait to hear all about how imposter syndrome has impacted your career, your personal life, all the things. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, first struck me, I think most women in medicine kind of as you go along, you keep thinking, well, gosh, I don't know, gosh, I don't know. And then you suddenly realize, oh, wait, you know, I do know the answer here. And where you first start to, you know, listen to potentially a colleague or someone you know, explain something and you realize, wait a minute, that's, that's not how that works. I actually really, I understand this data and this is what I think is the right thing to do. And you kind of develop that clinical confidence, which, um, you know, has developed over time. I think I remember being a intern, very convinced I didn't know anything and everyone was so much smarter than me. And Mm -hmm. I had one attending tell me, no, you do know things, just, just fake it (laughs) and then you'll feel it. And Mm -hmm. then, so I kind of did that the next day on rounds. And I remember he came up and he like punched me on the shoulder. He was like, good job. And I was like, I still didn't know what I was saying. He's like, but you sounded confident. And then um, I just kind of thought that was amusing. Um, but then I, you know, really started to think about, you know, I did know things and, you know, and then it was, it was okay to not know some things. And then that was an opportunity for growth. And then most recently, um, I think I've gotten much more comfortable recognizing that, you know, I am an expert in the importance of breathing healthy air. So I remember I was approached by the American Lung Association um, several years ago to go speak to our legislature 
um, you know, different members because they were considering some tobacco bills and some um, air quality bills and diesel. And, you know, I remember thinking, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, like I'm not a diesel mechanic and I'm not a, you know, I'm, you know, aren't, don't they have those policy experts and all those people that gave us those lectures, I remember, and all these conferences and what do I know? And then you go and you start talking to policymakers and you realize, oh my gosh, I know so much more <laughs> than than the average person that they're talking to, you know, where people will say, well, you know, how bad is asthma really? Or how bad is, you know, how many people really have that? And you realize how much um, I think we as doctors see what is invisible to other people, right? Because most people kind of, you know, put on their clothes and try to go about their day and they don't show how sick they are and how, you know, Mm -hmm. devastating illnesses are. A lot of my patients are shut up at home. And so they're kind of invisible to society, but I I see them. Um, And that was where I realized, wait a minute, you know, I'm the person you know, I'm fortunate enough to be healthy. And so I can be in what I call an advocate, like I can carry their voices to the people who are making big decisions that are really impacting all these people's lives um, and try to, you know, make the invisible visible. And the same with air, you know, I think air is invisible literally to so many of us, but it actually has this dramatic impact on our health. And I, you know, kind of went from thinking that, you know, surely there were big scientists writing all these nice policy papers that the legislators were, you know, reading and the, you know, city council people and the average citizens are, you know, reading these position papers. And then I realized, wait a minute, like the the biggest scientific expert in most people's lives is honestly their doctor, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, rather than feeling like I had to have done a PhD in whatever topic I was talking about, recognizing that, you know, hey, as a doctor, my job is to translate science into the lived world. And I am an expert in that. And so I can, I can speak up and use that voice. I think you, you obviously had such a, a wonderful opportunity early in your career to take a step out of medicine and realize everything that you really do know. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of physicians don't ever get that opportunity. They, you know, they stay in the whole of their field or in medicine in general. And it's so common for us to forget how much we really do know. Absolutely. Because I think in medicine, you know, especially when you're a practicing clinician who's super busy, a lot of us full-time clinicians, you know, it's not that we have our, you know, 80% research niche that we kind of, you know, dig in on whatever cell signaling cascade, you know, we are kind of funneling this vast, you know, fire hose of new studies and information that we all try to stay up on and read the journals and everything. And so we all feel like we're kind of just skimming surfaces of the depth of this, these scientific studies, but really, if you think about the breadth of information that we're trying to keep track of and that we, we do a pretty reasonable job of helping people kind of, you know, translate to their lives because I spend every day seeing, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 or more patients coming with a specific problem. And I look into the literature and I learn about it and I can answer it for them. And so there is actually a pretty big depth of expertise, but one thing that happens is doctors just kind of talk to each other. You know, we all just, or, mm-hmm. you know, to our healthcare team at work, you know, where we're all like, ah, oh, smoking or, ah, oh, you know, the, fire smoke or, you know, the, you know, particulate matter, like, you know, traffic. So we kind of all talk to each other about, oh yeah, well, I was looking into housing, but the air quality index there is pretty bad. You know, we, you just kind of talk to each other and we don't mm-hmm. turn around and talk to our communities a lot of the time. So that's why I've become very, you know, passionate about physicians, you know, speaking out a little more about, um, about what, how to measure health risks and, and what we should really kind of be focusing on. I mean, especially, you know, there's this really, um, sad and, you know, scary anti-science movement right now in our world and in our country, you know, everything from, you know, anti-vaccination campaigns to the climate change denial to, you know, COVID denial, which is, you know, wild, you know, when I'm Mm -hmm. taking care of patients in the intensive care unit who, 
you know, are telling me that COVID's not a big deal and they're in the ICU with COVID. And I, mm. I, I don't know how to, like how you you know, and I don't that. know what to do with that. And yeah. I, I feel like the role of doctors a lot of the times is we're, you know, the people who may have studied the most science that anyone interacts with for some people, you know? And so I think um, that's where, you know, we can be the friendly local scientist in addition to the, the you know, the doctor for, for patients in terms of helping, you know, understand where health knowledge comes from. How has your activism and your, this new role that you have with really educating gen, the general population affected your feelings of imposter syndrome and your enjoyment of your job? Well, I think um, I enjoy my job immensely more. And I think, um, I think that's always true. You know, if you can find something besides medicine, for me, it complements medicine. Like I love medicine. I love being a doctor. Um, but sometimes, you know, if your job becomes everything that you focus on, it can be hard to have, um, to not have, you know, external outlets, right? We all just go crazy if we're doing one thing. So I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's, enriched my feeling of not feeling like an imposter, I think, because I have been able to, you know, I interview a lot of scientists on my podcasts who are the people who've originated these studies. And I, I feel like I now have kind of a greater understanding of these topics that have always interested me because I've, you know, been talking to the people who are doing the research and then also hearing a lot of their stories um, because, you know, scientists are people, right? They all have their, you know, interest. And for example, one of my favorite interviews I did was with a um, occupational medicine researcher who um, was pregnant. She was pregnant living in Los Angeles and she, you know, kind of felt you know, more trouble breathing. And she was just saying, you know, what is all this air pollution doing to people? And what is it doing to pregnancy? And no one had ever studied that. Um, And she's, you know, a, you know, world renowned expert in these, in, you know, air pollution research. And she, you know, just started on this journey doing, you know, excellent science, but kind of coming out of her own lived story. So I think a lot of us think that you kind of have to hide who you are as a doctor to, be a doctor, right? You're kind of just supposed to be like the blank canvas with a white coat. And I actually, um, you know, I think um, kind of being more holy who you are is actually um, more authentic to patients. I think they're kind of a little more willing to take your advice if you seem like you're a whole person. (laughs) Um, Because we tend to trust people, right? We don't trust, you know, statistics, or most people don't. I tend to trust statistics more, but I think that's because I'm a doctor. Um, And so I think um, kind of having an understanding that everybody has their journey of how they got to their science, right? The science just didn't fall from on high. Um, The same thing, like everyone has their journey to how they became a doctor. It didn't just, you know, come from some neutral place. And so Mm -hmm. I think um, recognizing that I am passionate about clean air, I am passionate about, you know, climate, you know, I have three young children, um, and, and all those things feed into each other, right? Because I'm one of the reasons I'm passionate about those things is I also see the toll they take on my patients, right? So the, mm-hmm. I don't know what it's like where you live, but we have a month longer of a more intense ragweed pollen season now because of climate change. And so I can kind of link that a little bit with my patients and then also to, you know, in my advocacy when people say, well, what does it matter? Like, who cares if the world's warmer? And I'm like, well, it matters. Do you, you know, do you have allergies? Because <laughs> it's more mm-hmm. intense. So I think those, um, the kind of the more I, I feel like it helps me kind of integrate different parts of myself more. And I feel less pressure to kind of just be this neutral um, blank slate in um, when I'm with my patients, which I think just makes me feel more authentic. Um, so that I think helps. Yeah. I, I love that you bring that up because I think there is, 
fortunately a shift in medicine now where doctors are becoming more human. And part of it, there is, there have been some, perhaps some stigmas that have had to be broken, especially among women physicians. But Mm -hmm. I think that I agree with you 100% that if we're allowed to be humans, it's just we're serving patients so much better. And not only that, but we're able to, our careers in medicine, I think are more likely to be more fulfilling and sustainable. If I had to separate who I truly am from my career, and that's something that I give so much of my time and energy to, and I felt like I couldn't really be my whole self, that would be a challenge for me to do for 30 or 40 years. And I think that this is all coming up, this is all coming up now to a head where people feel that pressure of having to live like almost two separate lives instead of just accepting their humanness in -hmm. all aspects of their life. And I think that I agree hundred percent that patients appreciate it and fellow physicians appreciate it. And I think it's just making medicine um, more approachable and we're providing better care, I think just in general. Yeah. And I think you can just live more authentically, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's always so important to kind of balance risks and benefits and really look at the data. But a lot of the time, um, you know, sometimes the most effective thing, what I'll tell my patients, you know, when they're questioning about the flu shot and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And, you know, I used to kind of dive into the statistics and, you know, go over all of it. And finally, I just say now, you know, I get it every year, kind mm-hmm. of as soon as I can. And I have three children and I hold them down while they kick and scream, <laughs> yell at me. Mm-hmm. But I say, I love you so much that I don't want to lose you to the flu or have you get your grandparents sick. So you're going to get a flu shot. And that's what we do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's more effective. I feel like I end up having more success with just sharing what I do, you know, and you don't want to be, you know, directive. And I don't, you know, I always tell patients, you know, you want to do what's consistent with your values, especially in the ICU with end of life decision making. Um, You know, I, um, I think a lot of times people really struggle with the idea that they're a surrogate, right? That, you know, I say, you know, your, your job isn't to say, what do you want? Like, do you want your dad or your mom to go on the breathing machine or not? Your job is to say, what would they want? Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so sometimes I'll even, again, draw from personal examples. I'll say, look, my parents have fairly opposite views on this, right? You know, my dad, you know, has strong opinions one way about, you know, wanting this life support, but not that life support. And my mom is kind of, you know, might be in a different camp about, well, if I can see the grandkids, you know, I've got you know, different thresholds. And so I think just this idea that, um, you know, there is, you know, there is scientifically correct and incorrect answers, but, there aren't always, um, those don't always, can't always be applied by someone else to your life. And it's a similar, I think, you know, for physicians that, you know, we, mm-hmm. we use the science to help decide courses of treatment, but it's a very individual um, art. And I think it's um, something we help to help our patients navigate kind of on, in their own, you know, journeys and everything. And I think sometimes people want some black and white right or wrong answer, but that doesn't always work for people. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about this whole fake it till you make it thing, because I think it comes <laughs> up a lot in medicine. Yes. What's your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think, um, I think one thing is, and I've, I've had to work on this kind of professionally too, is um, I am usually an external processor where I, um, you know, because sometimes like there, there is not a black and white right or wrong answer. You know what I mean? There's, you know, a huge morass of data 
um, and then kind of trying to sort out, okay, well, where does this patient fit? And then also just trying to think about um, kind of the vocational role of a doctor. So sometimes our, our job is to just provide comfort, calm, and steadiness in a sea of chaos. And this is obviously true in COVID, right? Where nobody knew anything, right? And so mm-hmm. people would be saying, oh, gosh, well, what should we do? And I'd be like, I don't know, but I don't know because nobody knows. Like the experts mm-hmm. don't know because nobody knows. This virus has existed for three months. Like <laughs> you know, we have no idea what the answer is. And so, um, you know, but um, recognizing that sometimes that is not comforting, mm-hmm. you know, and people want the doctor to just steer the ship. And so I think... Um, so that is one thing where I, I kind of remember remember that time because I do remember a time in the ICU in March where it felt chaotic. Like it just felt really, really chaotic and everyone felt really uncertain. And part of it was just like, I mean, just the massive societal trauma we were mm-hmm. all going through, right? And we were starting to have patients dying of this and we didn't really know what to do. And, you know, it's not like the national political landscape was, you know, helping us feel supported. Right. So, um, so I remember kind of, uh, you know, realizing, okay, I just need to fake it right? I just need to fake certainty when there isn't really certainty. And I, you know, I did it based on the best science. So, you know, that's like, okay, well, I don't know about this form of ARDS, but every other form of ARDS we've ever studied, we do low tidal volume ventilation, we do this strategy, this may be different, we may find that out later, but this is what we're going to do. And so I actually kind of pulled back from my natural tendency, which is to be fairly conversational with the ICU, my ICU team about, you know, hey, there's this study and this, and maybe we'll try this, but, and just kind of say, like, this is what we're going to do, like, and like, kind of, you know, if people asked, I would share that. But I think that's where I, I feel like there can kind of be an ebb and flow um, in terms of thinking about like, well, what's the role of the doctor? And I remember thinking, okay, well, I think my role right now is to just be the person who's certain, even if I'm not certain, because um, there's already so much uncertainty. So someone needs to take that role and it is most appropriately me um, right now. So that was, I think, a part that I thought about it. Um, So I think it's hard because I think as a physician, there is a role of, you don't want to be stuck in analysis paralysis. And sometimes your job is to be the person who makes the decision, Mm -hmm. um, even in the face of imperfect data. And so I'm always someone who wants to have perfect data and a study that, you know, perfectly tells me what to do in a certain situation, because these are life and death decisions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're life and death decisions. You want to get it right. Um, But sometimes you will never know. And, um, and so those are the times where I've tried, I actually have gotten better at faking it as a, um, as I think a, a comfort measure, right? Like if, if it is uncertain and it's not clear what the right course is, um, I'll, you know, I'll tell patients, you know, we could go either way, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I think, you know, we'll, if we, you know, commit to a course um, and they, you know, and that's kind of like what was most consistent with them, I'll just try to support it even when it, it can't be, you know, you can't have that certainty. But I think um, sometimes when people are kind of lost in a sea of uncertainty, having someone who, is kind of helping stabilize them, I think can be helpful. So that's kind of the one place where I think um, that can be useful. <laughs> I think that's a really good example. And I, I just want to add that I, I think that when I think of fake it till you make it now, what I've recognized is that there's so much in medicine that we continue to learn. Like there's only so much we learn as a student and a resident. And I think that for me, at least, I thought that I would just know everything one day and then you realize a few years into it, as you're when you're attending, you're like, oh, I'm just never going to know everything. That's just not possible. But it's this ex- expectation that you, your confidence comes from just doing things that are new to you. 
with the best of your ability and everything that you've learned so far. So I think that is very similar to what you said. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. It's not like going around acting like an arrogant person who doesn't know anything and just doing things with no expectations of concern about outcomes. But I think as a physician, it has a lot to do with recognizing how much you do know being very aware of all the uncertainty of the future and being confident in that discomfort and uncertainty, like you said. So I think that's a really good example of, of that, how that fake it till you make it can really serve us in medicine for sure. Yeah. I think I used to think not knowing what the right thing to do was, um, was like, was very anxiety provoking. And Mm -hmm. now I think, you know, once you kind of get familiar enough with the studies and the research in your field, you kind of know, this is a place where frequently no one knows what to do, right? There, and not that no one knows what to do because there aren't things you can do, but it's just we, ha- we have never, either the study is impossible to design because it would be unethical, right? Or it has just not been done yet, or this is a completely new disease and we don't know and we're waiting for the data. So I also think eventually it kind of makes you more efficient at, um, at learning new things because you kind of are always surveying for, has someone finally published the study that answers this question, you know, mm-hmm. versus when you're, um, in training and like the whole fire hose of medical literature seems like it's, you know, overwhelming because everything's new. Um, eventually kind of when you're in your field, you, you kind of know what is not known or has not been done yet. And mm-hmm. then are kind of more alert to when those kind of studies can come out. Um, and then also just accepting yourself of, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, when I was first starting out as a critical care fellow, you know, and thinking, well, gosh, you know, I wish, you know, my attending were here. I wish, um, you know, if, if, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to do on this particular, you know, crazy disease that I haven't heard of or something. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of being comfortable with, you know, I have trained for so many years, right? Like I am the doctor that is on tonight. Like (laughs) I am the person you get and that's, you know, and I, um, it, I'm as good as anyone else to get you through, you know, this critical illness. Um, you know, I can't have trained more. I can't have done these things. Um, so here I am and um, and just kind of being gentle, um, I think, a little bit with yourself. I mean, always holding yourself to a really high standard of excellence, you know, doing your work to stay current and constantly learning, but just recognizing that, you know, um, scrupulosity and being completely fastidious and, you know, trying to frantically read every single article is just going to make you an unhappy human who is mm-hmm. going to therefore be a bad doctor. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great um, last point that you just made. And I just, I do like to end with your best piece of advice to physicians who are struggling right now and maybe do feel like they don't have enough to offer and are feeling like maybe they're not being the best doctor they can be. Yeah, I think, um, well, one thing I think about is um, people are where they're supposed to be, right? I mean, I think I wish this pandemic hadn't happened. I wish we lived in less anti-science times, but these are the times we live in. So then I I do take a very vocational approach to medicine as in I I think it's a calling Um, and not that it always is for everybody, but I feel like, okay, so we're here. So um, just to think about, well, you know, to kind of rest in your uniqueness, like what makes you you, like what skills do you have because I guarantee there's some skills you have that are exactly what is needed in some way where you are. And I think doing something that's needed is one of the, um, is one of the ways to, to feel whole and happy, especially if it's something you're good at um, and kind of letting go some of the things you're not good at. <laughs> I think that's perfect. I love that so much. Thank you, Erica, for your time. Thank you so much. <laughs>